What does it take to make one cup of coffee? What are the stories contained in a single cup? Who is this handsome man? All the kids these days are investing in the latest fad like tech or cryptocurrency. If I had learned anything these past few years watching the wealthy is that they invest in the most boring stuff and the basic commodities. What is more of a necessity than coffee? To learn more about this boring investment, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash coffee. first part is going to be a good insight into what's actually kind of happening in the uh, mastermind calls we're having. Uh, I'm going to be going over a 20-minute talk I gave to a webinar group that we did talking about investing in the seller's market and the way I kind of view the investments coming my way and where we're going. And, you know, I do believe a recession is probably coming up in the next year to three Second part of the podcast is going to be Tyler Shelf's interview. He's the guy from the Cashflow Guys podcast. And here they are. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. I mean, this show only take about 20, 30 minutes, but I want to test drive this new breakouts feature on the Zoom. Uh, so it'll give you guys a chance to connect with each other. I always think it's kind of neat to uh, meet someone halfway across the country. And um, it's not very conducive to do it when there's like more than three people. I, I hate meetings when there's more than three people because you don't get anything done. So what I'm able to do with this thing is I'm able to uh, split you guys up, groups of twos and threes, and you guys can kind of meet people one-on-one. So the topic of today is, you know, how, how do we invest in a, the seller's market? Last time I checked, the recession was in 2008, and it's been almost over the, uh, 10 years since the last crash, and we're kind of due for one. Um, but kind of starting out, this is going to be kind of a doom and gloom, uh, the world is ending type of uh, segment here. But, you know, just starting out, the population is still going up here, guys. Um, got the population charts. I just pulled that today from a recent report. Um, yeah, across the country, I mean, you're going up two, three, five percent all over the place. And then you know, there's a little bit of net migration, people moving out of Hawaii, California, um, going to those um, more pro-business states there in the south and southeast. I'm just going to kind of hit over the, uh, the highlights here. Uh, this is kind of my, what I tell a lot of people, um, you know, should I invest or should I not invest? Uh, Robert Kiyosaki says he has three sides of a coin. There's heads, there's tails, and then there's the edge of the coin where um, you know, the smart, sophisticated investors are, and they're able to pick out the good deals and invest, whether it's a hot market or a cold market. Um, I think if you're unsophisticated and you don't know what the heck you you should do, maybe you should sit out or at least learn, right? And I, I see this all the time with newbie investors. They self-sabotage themselves and they don't do anything because 
they hear it's a hot market, it's a hot market. Um, you, you give yourself an out 99 times out of 100, you won't do anything and you'll take that out. So my, my suggestion is to learn how to do the numbers yourself. There's a, my analyzer online. I think it's simplepassivecashflow.com backslash analyzer. I don't know if it's spelled with a S or a Z. I, I think it's a, I don't know what's really spelled, how it spells in real life, but I know that I spelled it with an S. <laughs> what that is, like, you know, you just, you just analyze the deals yourself and you see what comes up and you're bu- trying to buy the best ones that you've been seeing. So you're just trying to find some data points. So that's a little screenshot of it right there. Uh, I guess as an investor, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you know, how you, just how they, they call it, you know, dollar cost averaging in the stock market, but you're kind of sort of trying to do that here with real estate. You're trying to find better than average deals and just constantly be investing. Because one of the cool things is as you start investing, you start growing your network and that's, that gets you better and better deals. And that none of that happens unless you put in the effort do the work yourself and um, kind of level up your game. Um, so I, I think I've showed you guys this about a million times, this chart. Is there anybody that doesn't understand what's going on here with this little stacking your portfolio together? So the base, the gist of it is like, you know, some guys will call me and their net worth is only like 200 grand. And I'm like, you know, you, you shouldn't invest in a syndication or a private placement because a lot of these minimums are twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars, and you're going to um, be going in with a lot of your a big portion of your net worth. And no syndicator should take you in that type of deal. That's irresponsible. Uh, so how do you how do you get up to that? Well, you pick up some turnkey rental. That's how I did it. Uh, if you're living in a primary market, California, Hawaii, Florida. Well, Orlando, Orlando and Miami might be a primary market, but there's a lot of other good places in Florida, but New York, Boston, those type of places, you're not going to find the rent to value ratios required to be able to cash flow. And like I said, it's a, it's a seller's market. We may be at the top of the market. I, I think we are. Um, you should be only investing in cash flow today. I've probably taken this from about three or four people, but this market cycle chart, I mean, this is no secret. The, uh, the market goes up and down. Typically it goes down a lot quicker than it comes up. Right. So like, you know, if you think 2008 to 2011, the market was falling in that period, but from 2011 all the way to now, I mean, it's a much slower recovery. Normally, you're looking at a full market cycle from top to top or bottom from bottom, however way you measure it, of 8 to 12 years. Do the math. 2008 to 2019 is 11 years. Uh, So one of these, with that in mind, I try and stick to class B and C properties. Uh, Those are the four property classes there. Typically, A-class are going to be your more luxury properties. You're not going to have the rent-to-value ratios necessary to cash flow. Class D properties here on the left side are going to be too much of a headache. And, um, you know, Class B and C are sort of the uh, the sweet spot. Um, 
it might be a culture shock for a lot of us, but the population curve is mostly centered around class D houses and class C apartments. <clears throat> I, uh, I think a lot of people, they, they hear about investing in places like Nevada or, or Las Vegas or Florida or, or Phoenix, Arizona. I think that those type of markets might be a little bit of a uh, um, sucker place, if you ask me. And uh, the, the reason why I say that is a lot of unsophisticated investors in a California will want to be a wannabe investor. And yeah, they've been to Las Vegas before. Who hasn't? And they feel comfortable because one time their Uber driver took them off the strip, off Tropicana, and you know they saw some rental properties out there. So there's a comfort that comfort feeling there. So um, you know, look look in the last big trough we had from 2016, the market dip from 2000 or 2006 to 2011. Look where all the red is. It's all in those speculation areas. So again, that's why I kind of stick more towards that southeast. Uh, era where the job growth is and the population are because uh, I mean the theme of today's talk is you know what what happens in a recession right how do we recession proof our investments and it's just kind of speculating what's going to happen in the next recession so this this right here is um, kind of a, a simulation of what will happen you know the Basically, the A-class residents will move to the Bs, the move, Bs will move to the Cs, the Cs will move to the Ds. And, um, you know, you're, you're kind of seeing some cooling off in the upper class. Like in Seattle, you know, you used to be able to get a one-bedroom for 1700 It's come down a little bit to 1625 just to use one example. This is why I kind of like to stay in that class B and C area because, you know, it's those A-class deals that yeah they're cash flowing right away and I, and I think that's kind of the, the lure of them but in a recession they struggle the most any other questions before we kind of get any of that stuff I mentioned you guys can uh, type it into the chat box too I'll, I'll put that out too So typical, when I'm underwriting a deal, the, probably the third biggest thing I look at are like vacancy rates. So normally class C will have the lower vacancy rates because it's a little bit more demand for that. Class B will be having higher. So here's a little spread. This is by no means what you should be using, but it's just, it's good to get a, a sense of the difference between the three. And um, one of the probably the second biggest thing I look at when I look at underwriting deals are the rent increases per year. So typically, what you you're going to do is you're going to use a, a escalator on your underwriting of like two percent, typically plus or minus one or two percent points. Uh, in this kind of environment. I would not be using anything higher than two and a half percent. So that's a big thing to watch out if you're a passive or even if you're just underwriting your own deals. So a lot of you guys are 
might be buying turnkey rentals or single family homes. And I'm just going to use this as example to kind of um, talk in theory what I'm talking about here. Uh, so this is sort of just a scatter chart that I made. It doesn't really have data. It's just sort of theoretical. But, you know, I took like the rent to value um, percentages that I was seeing for the last few years for a property that rented for $900 a month. And that's probably more like a B minus class property. So you're seeing a lot of, I, you know, when I was starting to do this, I could find that for a 1.1% rent to value ratio. That has gone down each year as more and more people finally pick up that purple book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and listen to podcasts and hear about this cool new thing called a turnkey rental and they get into it. So what I'm suggest suggesting is build your data point, your scatter chart, and try and build this line of best fit. Because, yeah, you might have been on a forum two years ago and heard that, you know, this is what the numbers on their property is. But that's not you, and nor is it that time and era. You need to be kind of moving forward and just buying the best of classes, what I mentioned before, like so the dollar cost averaging. So it sounds very obvious, but buy the best in that type, that that era. And this is what I kind of do with multifamily. Um, multifamily is probably about four or five times harder to underwrite because there's just more variables where I, I believe the main variables for single family homes are bedrooms, baths, square footage, date, and, and uh, rent. Uh, multifamily might have a dozen more than that. That's why I say it's a, kind of a factor higher of complexity. But at the end of the day, it, it it comes down to what KPIs you're looking at. And the KPIs I look at, uh, unlike turnkey rentals or single-family homes where I'm looking at the rent-to-value ratio there on the y-axis, I'm looking at the return that I'm seeing if it's underwritten property in five years. So when I get a deal package, I'll, you know, I'll run the numbers myself with the P&Ls and rent rolls. Then I'll put it on my scatter chart. I don't really have a scatter chart. I just have one in my head because I can kind of remember this stuff. It's not that hard. And um, I just kind of pick out the one that, that are best after, you know, best in class, I guess. No secret. And I think that's what you should be doing. Um, again, the, the, the mistake that the beginner is going to make is just they're going to pick a property, say, over here, and they're going to say, well, this is not as good as in 2015 and 2007 and they'll never do anything and they'll keep working at their job for 40 years and they'll keep putting money in the stock market and the stock market will, will bomb out on them. And we all know how that ends. Uh, you guys can kind of read through some of this, this stuff later, but it's kind of dense. Uh, one thing that has that I've kind of picked up, um, some people have been kind of telling me about this this uh, treasury yield curve, something about the 10 and the two-year is what people like to graph. And this is a little geeky, but apparently a lot of people will say that a recession is marked when the 10 and the two-year treasury invert, sort of like what this graph is doing right now. When that happens, you're like looking at a, a recession six to 18 months down the road 
So guess what? It happened about a month ago. So it's, it's going to happen. Um, but yeah, like I said, don't be that newbie who doesn't do anything and just uses it as a lame excuse. Um, so here, okay, here's my theory. This is why I keep going into deals. So say I go into a deal that cash flows me 8%. And this is like a CB asset where, you know, it'll fare pretty well in a recession. Um, the guy, the guy hoarding cash, not doing anything and thinking he's super cool because he, he's justifying him not doing anything will lose nothing in theory, but they always have something to lose. Um, nobody can be in entirely all cash. Um, but on the other hand, I'm still making money and the 8% is just my cash flow. That's not including my, my gain from the, the force appreciation. So my theory is here in a recession, my cash flow might dip from 8% to 4%. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen. It might be better than that. I mean, some people will say in a recession, my C-class asset might actually do better. But I'm just going to theorize here and say that it's going to be cut in half to 4%. Um, so that's why I like to go into deals with 8 to 12-year debt terms so that I can bridge over to the next cycle side of the market cycle. So I don't have to sell in the dawn market. Um, but in the meantime, you're making 4% more than the guy hoarding cash making zero. And, and here's where the, uh, the argument gets a little bit better. So if you remember, if you think that back to the last recession in 2008, you had about um, a few years there from 2009 to 2012, where people didn't know if it was at the bottom or if you look at that diagram up above the phase four so the hoarding cash guy from 2009 to 2012 or if you want to call it projected 2020 to 2023 or whatever um i don't think that they're going to have the balls to do anything i mean they're going to be looking at this market and it's going to be like a trying to catch a falling knife um i'm trying to I put myself in my perspective where I was in my early twenties in the last recession. And, you know, I kind of saw it all happen. I, I did, I wasn't really in the game, but I saw it happening and I, and I don't think I was, would have been able to say, yep, this is the bottom. We're going to go after it. I, um, I mean, I bought a house at the right time in 2009, but it, it went down for a few more years after that. Didn't really start picking up to 2012. And we don't know how the lending environment is going to be because I think a lot of, in 2009 to 2012, a lot of the, uh, the lending dried up. So even if you had the, the uh, sports almanac from Back to the Future and you're able to project when we were coming up, I don't know if you would have been able to close deals using leverage. So let's just assume that it's four years of the doldrums where the hoarding cash guy is not doing anything. And me, the person who, yeah, my, my cash flow got cut in half to 4% a year, but for four years, I'm still cash flowing, repositioning the property at probably even less, less uh, cost to because contractors are just desperate for work at that point. Um, you know, so I go 4% times four years, I'm still 
ahead of the guy hoarding cash. So that's kind of my grandmaster. Um, I guess that's my hypothesis, what's going to happen. And that's kind of why I keep moving forward. But it, the deals have to be underwritten to be able to uh, withstand that, that first shock of the market. Uh, we'll finish up here with this uh, talk on equity that this plagues probably most investors. Um, so most investors, you'll probably make about 30% a year on your money initially. Uh, if you leverage it effectively, you can watch the video at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash returns. Um, so this percentage includes cash flow, mortgage pay down, uh, appreciation, even though I don't really count appreciation, but there's a little bit of appreciation there and the tax benefits too. So in the beginning, you're making like 30%. And as time moves on, you know, from 2010 to 2015, the property value goes up and your tenant pays down your mortgage. So you're getting more equity, so that, which is a good thing. But unfortunately, you're pretty much making the same thing. So your return on equity gets lower and lower and lower. Um, you can see how this trend line goes. It kind of goes down below 10% there 10, 15 years later. Um, personally, when I get to about anywhere from 10 to 20%, I feel like it's time to re-leverage. And how that looks on the graph is you sell it. Here, you know, 2017, you sell it. You either do a 1031 exchange, a sale or cash out refi and re-leverage it and you get that return on equity back up because it's all the area on the curve is what investors really sophisticated investors look at um the the, the scenario with the uh the investor and these are most investors out there actually they hold on to properties forever and, and they never get their equity moving and they just follow this curve all the way down here down to single digits when for amount as effort as it takes them, they should have been in a savings bond. And, um, you know, they're probably still working at their job because they, their, their money wasn't working hard for them. And what they probably should have done 10, 15 years ago was re-leverage it and go into another asset. Now that's a little bit more hard work, but so is working for 10, 20, 30 years too. So that's, that's kind of that high level on that. Did, did any questions before we kind of move on? So what I wanted to do for the last 30 minutes, this is uh, what we're going to be doing in the Journey to Simple Passive cash flow um, Mastermind here. I see a couple of you guys who are in it. So I'm just kind of testing this for the group when we go live in a couple of weeks. The whole point of the group are, you know, people are sort of paying to get into the group and it's a more high quality group of people. I always found that it was really cool when I could talk to a few investors that were also investing in, say, Birmingham, that we knew who all the vendors to use. And I could be able to tap, text somebody if I needed uh, a vendor for HVACs or my property manager wasn't working for me. So we need to go to somebody else. Um, so that's what that this program is. You guys can check it out, simplepassacastle.com backslash journey. But we're going to test this cool thing out called breakouts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split you up in pairs. And you guys can kind of connect with the other person. I'm not going to hear anything. I'll put the, the timer on the clock for about 10 minutes. 
and then I'll use the magic of the internet to connect you with another person. Have you ever listened to a podcast or been in a seminar and too afraid to ask a slightly personal question? Our mastermind will have an intimate feel where people are going through the program together and at their own pace if needed in order to foster friendships. When I was learning and paying thousands of dollars for masterminds and mentorships, the network, however hokey pokey as it sounds, was a big part of it. What happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. We'll use the bi-weekly webinar sessions to dissect concepts with real-life examples. Hear how someone else might implement something like infinite banking concept on a hot seat session. Our group will attract thought leaders to meet just with our exclusive group. We can get FaceTime and ask individual questions. Why? Because our group will be people who put their money where their mouth is and go out and make things happen, as opposed to your local REI club, which is traditionally just a bunch of tire kickers and some sharks. Simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey to learn more. And that was the end of the first half of the podcast. Again, if you like that, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey and uh, see if you're a good fit for our mastermind group. We're pretty much filled up, but maybe you uh, might want to get on the waiting list for uh, later this year or the beginning of next year. And here's Tyler's interview coming up. Hey guys, this is Lang with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. I got Tyler Shelf from the Cashflow Guys. And a little trivia there, there's only one guy. It's the only Tyler on that thing. You can check out his podcast at thecashflowguys.com. All right, thanks for coming on, Tyler. Hey, thanks for having me. I got to tell you, there used to be two guys, but one guy just went into the insurance industry instead. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can make it like, well, the, the listener, that's the other guy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, so thanks for coming on. We've been working on a couple of projects together and definitely want to get your opinion on a lot of this, uh, this stuff lately. You know, we've been working on like the syndications and, you know, you're still playing around with the stuff that are like half a million, a million in that kind of zone, the upper end of the mom, pod investor range. So I think you bring in a very good insight with that, but let's get to know you a little bit better. How much simple passive cash flow are you making today and how are you kind of doing that? Boy, you know, it's been a good couple of years. So when I left, I worked for the government and when I left the government, I was making just under 300 grand a year on a W-2 and I was able to escape to pass that number within my first year. I took six months paid vacation from the government, hammered down and was able to get out of the rat race there in 11 months. So pretty proud of what we've accomplished. Was that always a hard thing to, to do? And like, if you didn't get that severance, hey, was that kind of the trigger? I got to tell you that I was like, literally shaking, signing my resignation. It's like, because <laughs> you get so comfortable working for the government. I mean, I was a federal employee. I have all the benefits in the whole nine yards, 10 years of service and just under 10 years of service. And I was at that point to where I felt if I didn't make the move right then, I was never going to make it. Could have maybe hung out for a paltry retirement. But at the end of the day, I thought I could do so much better just securing my own future, buy assets, right? For us, my wife and I talked about it. We decided to make the jump. And it was scary. I mean, I, even talking about it today makes me twitch a little bit. You know, for me, originally, right out of the gate lane, the huge difference was the taxation. Massive difference. I was paying more in tax working for the government than a lot of my friends at the time made as an annual pay, which that in itself was got to go right back in my pocket. So that was a beautiful thing. 
so before you kind of pulled the pin and, and left the job, were you, what were you kind of doing up to that point? We did this. So I came, I've been in the business 18 years. I started as a realtor, became a house flipper. I call it an accidental on purpose landlord. I was flipping a bunch of houses all at once back in about 04, 05. I realized that the property values were going up about 25% per year. I'm kind of a numbers person. I like numbers. I decided to rent all that. I finished the flip rehab on a bunch of houses and just put tenants in them. So then a year later, of course, the value went up like 26, 27%. I cashed out of all of them, sold all of them all in one year. Not because I thought a crash was coming. I wasn't that savvy back then. I was just greedy and I wanted to take a lot of time off and have the money to do it. So that's what I did is I sold off all those assets, but I wasn't really smart with it back then. I didn't think about things like, oh, I don't know, capital gains tax <laughs> that I had to pay. That again was six-figure tax bill that came along with it. Lesson learned. Fast forward, getting back into real estate was a challenging decision because I feared that tax obligation. I didn't know what to do with that. And as I started to pay more attention to things, I realized that if I just change how I earn my money and I stop selling the assets once I get them and they're cash flowing, just as long as I don't keep them or as long as I don't sell them, I'm not going to have those big tax hits. And if I earn my money more passively than I do actively, I'm going to be taxed at a different rate. So it made perfect sense. Just go back into real estate, focus on apartments. So still doing the flipping or like, well, the rehab, but the hold, that was kind of the strategy. Correct. So I don't know if you, you saw the recent movie, the, the Sol Han Solo mo- movie, but this is the Han Solo question. And those of you who don't know, Han Solo was that guy in Star Wars. Um, before he met Luke and Leia, he was kind of just a low-life smuggler doing whatever. But then, you know, something happened, had this pivot point and things kind of changed for him. What was your kind of first pivot point into this world of cash flow? For me, it was, I got back into real estate in 2014. I was 44 years old. I was out in the Bay of Fundy in the North Atlantic in the wintertime, freezing to death, thinking to myself, I have to do this for another 10 years and then get a retirement that I really can't live on. It's not enough money to live on. And I thought, I had to figure out a change. That and my wife has a disease called MS, which is a debilitating neurological disorder, which means eventually she'll wind up with some severe health considerations that will impact her ability to travel and enjoy life and things like that. So I needed to come up with a way to earn my income, reduce my taxation, but also have the flexibility to be home with my wife when she needed me. And real estate wound up being the only thing I could come up with that was able to check all those boxes. So for me, it became a no-brainer. So, I mean, at that point, you already had the experience. You, had, you could create value. It was just kind of funneling it into the more of the passive side. Can I maybe talk a little bit about, yeah, you I, found see, about that? I could create value on a short-term basis. I could find an opportunity. I'm good at negotiating. I could negotiate a great deal and turn around and flip it. I can make piles. I have no problem making piles of money. Where I lacked the experience and I didn't have a background in was creating streams of income, streams that I didn't have to go out and beat the pavement for every day. When I learned the benefits of paper, paper, creating paper, notes, and things like that. For me, that was a big game changer. When I realized that instead of worrying about a lump sum check, for example, when I take a real estate commission, when I work as, when I broker a deal, instead of taking my commission as a check at the closing table, I always try to negotiate taking my fee in payments and having the buyer make the payments. When I put on my realtor hat, let's say, and I sell somebody a small apartment building, instead of them money coming out of the deal from the seller's proceeds, I will actually gift that money to the buyer at the closing table, which helps them with the down payment they need or whatever they need, renovations, whatever, essentially loan that money to them and then carry it back as a note to mortgage so that I can now generate 
streams of income that have an interest interest rate or growth tied to them, a yield tied to them. So how they charge six, seven percent interest and delay gratify commission over a period of years. Now I create a regular stream of income. Now my CPA and I can make a tax plan based on that that makes sense. And I help people put deals together. So it creates a win-win. So is, are you kind of sort of like a more of a debt investor or do you, is that equity? It's, is, well, is it's straight return or is it like, you know, if say this, the buyer is a great investor mm-hmm. and they just triple the money in like a few years, do you get a piece of the action? It's deal, deal specific. So I've done both where I've come in strictly as an equity partner. I've come in both as an equity and a debt partner and then strictly as a debt partner. It's very deal dependent. A lot of the times I'll come in as a debt partner because the person is either a new, new investor or a owner occupant. They're going to occupy the property. So for them, it makes more financial sense to have me in as a debt partner so that they can use amortization to pay me down and build equity. They want equity. Other cases, I'll come in if the deal's tight or something like that, or maybe they need some expertise from me after the sale helping them get off the ground, get the management teams in place and, and set the thing up for success. I'll come in with more of a equity position. For me, I think it gives me, I have, I have a vested interest in the success of the investment. I'm not just a realtor. I'm not, it's not a transactional relationship. It's more of a longer term equity play where it's like, look, will you leverage my team and my resources? I've got all the right people in my market. We'll get this thing rehabbed, rented up with good quality tenants on good, strong leases. And when that happens, say in five years, you just buy me out of my share of the deal. So what kind of interest rates are you kind of shooting for on your side? I mean, definitely that equity, I mean, I'm thinking five to 10%. Is that kind of the range or? It varies. It really depends on what the deal can afford. Number one, what I don't want to do is playing realtor is when I have my realtor head on, I don't want my commission to impact the deal. That said, time is money. Depending on the degree of time that I'm going to invest in the deal, if it's just a transactional relationship, it's going to be somewhere around 4 to 5% of the purchase price is what my fee will be. That includes the underwriting, the due diligence, and all that. If it where we're going to be in longer term, then we would adjust that accordingly. When it's structured as debt, it varies. And you know, a lot of it comes down to, again, what can the deal afford? If 7% interest, let's say, on an amortized note is a challenge for them on the short term, does it make sense to maybe extend the term? Does it make sense to drop the rate and extend the term? How do we structure this debt to where it fits the deal? Because, like I said, I don't want to bankrupt the deal. I want the deal to succeed. Obviously, I'm taking risk because I'm taking a delayed commission. My commission comes at the back end of this thing or right. over time. So I want to make sure it wins. And I'm just thinking you know, that a, a good term length might be, what, five to 10 years or something like that. I mean, five, you should be get, getting something stabilized in five years, surely. And- oh, absolutely. So that's kind of the the normal term length then. That's correct. Very interesting. Very interesting. Next question here. What's your worst life or business moment and what did you do after? What was the lesson learned? Oh, I'd probably say the worst one was it was a flip that went horribly wrong. We had a, uh, it was a big house that we bought, foreclosure auction. It was, uh, we had, there was three partners. There was myself and two other guys. One of the guys brought all the money. I was the guy that found, that finds the deals. And then when they get them fixed up, sell them. And the third guy was the contractor. The contractor guy mistakenly being, this is going back many, many years ago, like year 2000. So geez, that was a long time ago, 18 years ago. We gave signing rights to the bank account to the guy that was our third partner because it was convenient for him to go get materials. What we discovered was one day 
that he was actually using our money to buy materials for other jobs. So he was embezzling money from the company. When we caught him, at the time, we had done a few previous slips and we had a lot of money sitting in there. Some of that money belonged to my other partner. The guy left the country and went to England with my partners and my money, about $250,000. Then find out that he had a full contracting business with crews and trucks and the whole nine yards. License number on the side of the truck. But we were friends and we never once thought to check his license. Come to find out he made the number up. It was a false number. He had no license. So to distract us from chasing him, he called the city and reported himself, because he's over in Europe now, reported himself as an unlicensed contractor, which consequently resulted in our job site getting red tagged. And it just opened up an entire can of worms. I mean, talk about big 3,000 square foot Victorian house. You imagine getting red tagged by the city. We had to peel walls back and plaster and laugh. We spent a year rehabbing that thing, you know, one board at a time. So what was the lesson learned that you could have prevented this? Or Diligence was a word I didn't even quite believe was necessary, right? Because I know people. So now it comes down to trust but verify. Everything that I do meets with some sort of verification. I'm going to be diligent, number one, making sure that everybody that says they're licensed is licensed. But more importantly, I want to develop a track record. I don't ask them for references. I go find references. I can't find them. I don't do business. That simple. Also, I always, I'm very careful about who I put in the checkbook control role. Learned that lesson the hard way, unfortunately, more than one time. But, you know, lesson learned. We were able to come out of it alive and, and well, so to speak, but we did suffer a pretty bad. Do you go as far as doing background checks, criminal checks, that kind of stuff? We do. Um, I use the same type of check that I do for my tenants, actually. It's a nationwide criminal history and, and background check. It, it tells us everything. Because one of the things that I've found is people that are that lack scruples or lack ethics, you can find that if they have a criminal record or if they have financial trouble, for example, they've had a bankruptcy, they have credit issues, they're far more likely to act, I would say, inappropriately when things don't go right or worse, when things are going right and there's excess to be had. They, they obviously can't. When they have terrible credit, it shows me that they have a difficulty with holding themselves back. When there's a pot of gold sitting in front of them, Sometimes those people are more likely to help themselves to it. They didn't pay their bills in the first place. The marshmallow test for adults. Exactly. Yeah, because you work with um, you know a lot of big deals, and I'm sure you see it too. Like it's usually the same people doing the deals, and they do enough deals, and they're good people, and everybody kind of knows each other. I think that's a good group to be around. Yeah, you got to do your due diligence, like Tyler says. Never know. We What's your thoughts it, you know. on you know the the single family home world versus you know, the more bigger institutional investing, do you kind of see the same, you know, different levels of character in, in both? You know, in, in single family, I, I believe that a large majority of the folks in the single family space operate from a scarcity mindset. Everything is, the values of the property, for example, it starts there. They're tied to what happened down the street, comparable sales. Single family investor, number one, this is my concern, has no control over the value of the property. Really, they don't. It's the community, what goes on in the community that controls the value of the property. The other guy in the local RIA doing his stuff a few miles away or 10 miles away. So by design, it's a speculation play. Uh, whether you're a, a buy and hoard landlord or a flipper, it's still a speculation play because the single family market is so volatile and, it, and it's directly tied to what goes on in the local economy. That's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Add to that, that recipe some scarcity mindset. People that can actually function independently. There are people out there that can exist. I know several of them as a single family investor, literally doing the work themselves, 
buying the materials, painting the walls, it can be done. Can they scale? No. I know, as well as I know you do, that as a, I was a single family guy, it's impossible to scale myself out of the rat race as a single family person. It's just not possible. That said, that's when I cut the cord and said, I'm done with the single family side. If I can't scale it, what's the point? Right, right. There's just too many landmines of people <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. landmines in the asset itself. There's landmines in all the, the service providers. And, you know, on the bigger side, you know, the commercial asset side, it's a small pool. We pretty much all know each other. Yes, there's, I'm sure, people out there, but we all know the same people. If we sat here and mentioned our colleagues on this episode and I rattled off my list, you would probably know 75 to 80% of them. Same both ways. It's a small world in the, in the commercial space. And I think that it's self-policing to some degree. In other words, if we've got a bad actor in the, in the bunch, they're not going to last very long doing what we do. That's my impression. And kind of going back to the trying to pick out the bad actor out there. I mean, I, I think there's enough people doing good deals that you don't really need to go out into the abyss and trying to find that new lead investor that no one's ever heard of. Right. <laughs> I, don't yeah. see, I don't see the value. been done, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So today, you know, you're kind of working, you're still building on cash flow. Is kind of the realtor stuff kind of the um, on the passive side, or is that kind of where, where are you putting most of your attention these days? Or is most the realtor of kind of just a trigger to backdoor more passive investings for you then? So for me, my realtor license, I manage a team. I've got a couple buyers agents that work with me and I help source leads. My podcast is a great source of leads and a lot of folks want to buy real estate from me using my criteria and the things that I do. So I leverage my license in that to monetize that end of it so I can monetize those leads. And then I put a small team of a couple buyers agents working for me that help facilitate that. My focus is primarily raising money for non-performing notes. Big fan of non-performing notes. I've been doing that now for a couple of years at the partner out in California. We've done quite well. I enjoy that. Of course, I'm raising money. I do have my people like you that are looking for apartments and whatnot. So we balance the two. But if I had to pick a focus, for me, it would be the non-performing notes, mainly because of the sourcing of opportunity and non-performing notes is more plentiful. There's more opportunity over there, more stuff to look at. As you know, commercial multifamily space only a handful of decent deals running around where on the note side, there's a lot more out there. And, and, and I'm a actually a pretty good believer in the notes. It's just, I haven't dived into it. I know, you know, we were talking about engineers. A lot of my podcast listeners are engineers. And I'd say once people do the single family home thing, they graduate to bigger things. The non-performing notes is a big space for engineers because for a lot of us that live in California or Hawaii or places far away from the actual deals, non-performing notes are actually a pretty good, nice way of going about doing this. You've got that servicer in there, no tenants, termites, or toilets. And it's a data-driven thing. I don't, you're probably a lot further along than the normal guy looking in. From the outsider's perspective, this note thing looks very fragmented and it's, it's hard to figure out, well, where do I buy the notes? And probably a good opportunity. It is. What you'll find is it's two ways. So it, it is very data-driven. You're absolutely correct from the analyzation point, from the point of actually acquiring the right notes and being able to make offers and get them through and get accepted. It's very much relationship-driven. That's the beauty. I like to analyze things. I'm, an, I, I'm not a details person to the degree of being an engineer, but I want to know what I need to know. Very focused on what are the numbers say? What are the stats? What's the likelihood and where's, what's the risk model in this? My partner, Paige, 
although she is a, a details person, what her best suit is, reach is building relationships, one-on-one relationships with banks and asset managers. So she can build new relationships on a one-to-one level, frankly, better than I can. That being her strong suit, she helps us source the opportunity of finding the notes. I, of course, communicate on a larger scale, but having a podcast and things like that. So my job in the mix is raising capital. It takes both. It, it takes the ability to analyze that data, but it also takes the ability to make sure that you're able to buy great opportunities because let's be honest, there's a lot of in, investor uh, institutional capital out there that kind of is, is, can be a competitor to us. So it, there's a big gap between us and them, and there's a very big area in the middle. So what you'll find sometimes is that we may go a month or two before we find something worth pulling a trigger on, or we look at a tape and the assets on it are just a, a mess. In that case, let's say we made a low offer on it to hedge our risk, a large industrial or a institutional player will come in and make a far more aggressive offer because they don't have to show the type of yield that we do. Them, a two, three, four, five percent yield would make sense. For us, that we think that's, that doesn't work for us. You're the uh, more agile, smart mom and pa investor that's looking for a good double digit yield, whereas you know, I had a stroke of a pen somewhere in some boardroom. They're kind of like, well, we're going to buy this type of note. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, the problem with notes, I'll be honest with you, Lane, is there's zero tax advantages. And, and in fact, it creates a taxable event. So from a tax perspective, for somebody that, like an engineer, that is a high W-2 income earner, if you're going to play in the note space, you certainly better have some real estate in your portfolio to offset that tax liability. If you don't, I mean, I'm no CPA, but I would first get with a good CPA because uh, it would be like flipping houses and winning a lot. Yeah. Or maybe maybe we should team up on like oil and gas investment and just go right. out and <laughs> and create deductions. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so something that you recently thought about burning your cash on, you know, maybe for like a time savings or improvement of quality of life. So I recently bought a piece of land up north of here where I got a, a cabin on it and whatnot, about 25 acres. And that's my like hidey hole. I go, I hide away there on the weekends. It's great. The phone doesn't work out there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I'm at the stage where do I want to keep it really rustic or do I want to make it like this gorgeous retreat. I can do either one. I just can't decide which one I want to do. And my wife has no help helping me decide. <laughs> so you're not working on the weekends and you just kind of go up there. And... No, I, I work Monday through Thursday. I usually take Friday, Saturday and Sundays off. It's something that you recently changed your mind on. I would say arbitrage. I'm a guy that is, I'm always focused on streams of income. I say that being a note investor, but truly I am. When I have a win, from a note investment, then I look at how can I take this amount of money and leverage into something that will provide streams. Deal sourcing has been low. So I have been looking at some opportunities that would normally be smaller than what I want to mess with, mainly because when they present themselves, if they're great deals and they provide that perpetual cash flow, kind of why not? Normally I would have just ignored those and just kind of focused on other things, but I'm starting to look at more of those opportunities to create more streams of income. Another thing I never thought I would look at before is small businesses. I'm starting to look at investing in some small businesses just to kind of spread things around a little bit. Are, are also, you kind of looking to bring in a partner on that, to kind of be their, your expert to walk your hand down that road? Or yeah, Absolutely. I'm not obviously an expert in all things. So what I would probably do is be the money partner to invest in somebody else's business to where they were an expert, maybe just need the capital, the infusion of capital, maybe a little bit of direction as far as entrepreneurship and better marketing help. Outside of that, I want to be hands-off. 
Yeah, and that definitely seems like make sure you kind of go around to the same conferences and meet kind of the same people. Maybe about five or ten percent of these guys, you kind of dig into their story and you find out that they just happen to be owner of some kind of more smaller business, like whether it be like an ink and jet, like a paper printing. Like it's like well, where did this come from? Right? It's so weird, but. A lot of those guys are kind of going back into their business side now that deals are kind of scarce and, you know, that's their highest and best use and they're kind of going back to where they came from. Obviously, they, that's probably why they're, they're in real estate because real estate is probably one of the best places to place more money into more passive activities and going the business route. I don't know, have, have you been, I mean, that's probably how you're meeting the people, right? Like, same way it is i spend a lot of time speaking locally in my market and spoken at different conferences and when i meet people i really like to engage in them and, and figure out what makes them tick why are they here how did they get here the one common denominator of the people that i see that are the most successful is they're just simply willing to take on larger chances or bigger chances than other people would willing to follow them through they also don't put all their eggs in one basket kind of like we invest all of our time into our job and then at the end of the cycle they turn 65 and the plan is to retire and live on less money doesn't make sense. For me, the buying the businesses is put a little bit over here, a little bit over there, let those things work themselves out. But I like the idea of being able to help other people get financially free, the business owner or whatnot. So for me, that's a big push. It's part of my why. Right. Yeah. I also got these other friends that have invested in a, a play. And I guess that play kind of blew up on them. And they're like, yeah, that's one of our best investment. I mean, we put barely anything and we're getting this big check every month. I mean, I have a client that does that. <laughs> turned seven figures investing in theater who knew right pizza <laughs> joint right you read rich dad poor dad what do they talk about in the cash flow game a pizza joint have you ever looked at the financials of a pizza joint you should being an engineer it'll blow <laughs> your mind how profitable they can be it amazes how often do you think of a pizza joint going out of business unless they're a big chain very rarely the mom and pops are in business for an eternity i've never heard of people saying that that was bad pizza it's always good pizza even though it's terrible exactly <laughs> It may kill you, but it's highly profitable. So do you have a certain like asset allocation, like 10, 20% of your, your, all your portfolio into like more active businesses or that you're trying to eye or. We're looking at about 25%. So we escaped the rat race back in 2014. My wife at the time, actually about a year later, got laid off from her job. We escaped the rat race. She just still chose to work. Part of that choice was the medical insurance where she works, provides medical insurance. And that's a big plus. Her having MS, she's got a, a debilitating disease. We needed medical insurance. So although she was still working, it was more by choice, financial necessity. That said, now we're at the point to where we're getting ready to phase her out of the job altogether. Still, we're very diligent about putting money away. That runs about 25% of what we're at. It fluctuates. I'm self-employed, so sometimes we have different different things. We do arbitrage. We have good months, bad months, whatever, but we always try to stick to that 25%. So in this seller's market, going and going out to like one of the newer guys out there, you know, they work still working a day job. They may have some money saved up, maybe like 20 grand, 40 grand, maybe even 50 grand of liquidity that they can take out from a self-directed Roth IRA or something like that. But for someone who doesn't have the experience, nor really the network, what would you suggest they do at this point in the game? Depending on if it was cash or, or IRA money, if they have the ability to open some sort of a self-directed IRA, I would first tell them to go Roth because the one thing we can all agree on is the taxes are never going to go down. So you might as well just pay your taxes now and then enjoy tax-free growth for the rest of your life. That's just my personal opinion. Right, I agree. Or just take the take the damn money out now and be done with it. Let it grow. Exactly. The second thing would be 
you know, what are they investing in? It's, a lot of people think, well, I don't have enough money to do something. Well, you do, because here's the thing. You can leverage other people's resources. A good example of that is, let's say you find somebody that's got a duplex and there's a lot of properties that are free and clear that don't have any debt. You can leverage that free and clear asset, giving that seller payments for equity. I actually teach that on my show, on my podcast is go in, negotiate seller financing, use what money you do have as a down payment, light renovation, let that grow, build that foundation and let that grow over time. If it's a retirement funds, great. You can create you can turn around and hold it for a couple of years and then turn around and sell it on terms. Take that note and mortgage and trade that note and mortgage or trade that note rather. That's as collateral towards a larger asset. You don't have to wait for them to pay off your duplex. You sell it for, you buy it for a hundred, you sell it for 150, five years down the road. Take that $150,000 note, use it as a down payment on a 20 unit building. Keep scaling like that. Because the one thing a lot of people want when presented to them properly is a predictable stream of income. What better predictable stream of income than a note secured by real estate in first position on a good, good asset. That's a home run. And most people can, they get kind of get tied up over the legal stuff. Is that something that a closing attorney can do for them? Absolutely. Any title company in the country or closing attorney can handle that transaction. It's ridiculously simple. And how much does that usually cost in terms of legal time or? In my market, a title company will do that as part of the transaction without any extra charge. I've done it at several title companies. I've never paid any extra. An attorney may ding you for an extra hour of, of labor, whatever that is, their hourly rate, three, four, five hundred bucks. Regardless, no matter what it costs, it's worth it. It's well yeah. worth it. Yeah, and no, I, I like that strategy. I mean, I think a lot of the listeners, they've got a, a full-time W-2 job, but a lot of them have the realtor license on the sign for no good reason other than they, at one time they wanted to look at have access to the uh, MLS. But to be able to kind of go in at closing and instead of taking your ten, twenty thousand dollars commission check, to stuff it back in the deal with a, a seller note adds more value to the buyer. Sometimes they can probably get in with actually no money if you do that. In a lot of cases, yeah. Yeah, definitely good, good stuff to think about. There's really, I believe that anybody pretty much that has the desire that's strong enough can, can get started in real estate investing without much of their own money. There's so many different ways you can leverage things. There's so much that's negotiable in a transaction besides the purchase price of the house. The title, the closing costs, the lender fees, all these things can be negotiated as credits. You got to remember everybody in real estate transaction for the most part is on commission. That gives you leverage, the ability to leverage things. I did my first deal with literally not one penny of my own money using a VA mortgage, no closing costs, no nothing. I walked out of there with a check for $1,700 in rent credits. So I think something that I'm still scratching my head out around is I know that there's, there's different fluctuations in this. So you go to the closing table as the agent you know, you may be getting like ten, fifteen thousand dollar check. Where do you start out with the terms? Of course, it's very negotiable, but you know, what what's this fair starting ground to ask for? What my commission would be? Yeah, you know, you, you stuff the money back in the deal, but you take what a seven percent from that or eight percent from that for a five year period. Or generally, that's kind of where I'll start. Um, what I find is a lot of my clients are payment shoppers, so we try to match the what the terms of the, of the note are to what the payment they feel is affordable based on their cash flow. Number. So if they're getting like a 5% interest rate, you would match it five or maybe six or. Um, not necessarily because first of all, I'm not in first lien position. Therefore I have increased risk not being in first lien position. I'm automatically going to command a higher interest rate because of risk, purely because of risk. Bank of America would be. Right. So that puts you at around seven or something. Yeah, like that. Seven, to eight seven to 8%. Right. 
and then we'll change the term to fit whatever the buyer needs as far as the payment. So let's say payment's 100 bucks a month and they don't feel comfortable they can get the cap rate they need and, and all the different things that they need. The, the cash on cash return with my 100 bucks built in there and maybe that number is $75, then we'll extend it out a year, 18 months or whatever it needs to be to get that payment down to where it makes sense. Right. And this is mostly on investment properties. You, you're not doing it on anybody's home sales or primary. Oh, absolutely. We do it on, on, yeah, on both home and investment. Oh, okay. What we found is that we cannot credit. The only thing we can, when we credit our commission to the deal, it has to go to closing costs. It cannot go to the down payment. Residential lending programs do not allow that to happen. The down payment has to come from somewhere else. However, credit, seller credits and things like that can all accommodate. I, I think the seller credits is what, 6%? That's the maximum now? Depends on the loan program. It's between 4 and 6%, depending yeah. on the loan. So if you can get 6%, you as the as the broker can probably kick back another 3 to 4 Yeah. And that's how the buyer walks away with nothing in there, almost. And then are you in that deal for a long time or do you like to kind of get out in 5 to 10 it depends. You know, I'm in the, when I'm doing that, I'm in the money lending business. I don't want to have to foreclose on somebody and, and set things up to where they won't succeed. So for me, it's strictly a loan is what it is. I'm focused on the return. So I want to set it up to where the payments make sense to allow them to succeed. I don't want to over under 20, 30 grand. I don't want to have to go to foreclosure for that little amount of money. When you apply the cost of a foreclosure at three, $4,000 to a $10,000 note, that's 25%, right? Mm-hmm. Not worth it, yeah. It's not worth it. So I want to make sure I set it up to where they win, where they can succeed. Because if they succeed, I automatically succeed. Definitely a good way to help out you know, friends and family, you know, especially if you're helping them buying their property and you kind of help them on this facet. And then you're not really doing it for the money, but you're definitely helping them on the front end. So we've got the final question here, and this is the, uh, the Tony Robbins question. He always talks about two main things, which are the order of fulfillment and the science of achievement. Kind of break that down first. What's your secret or hack to the science of achievement? Any uh, secret habits or quirky things that you've kind of done to get more stuff done and kind of get to where you're at today? This is going to sound bizarre. Nobody's probably ever told you this before, but I was, when I was in the military, they had these, these notepads called Right in the Rain, right? little notepad. And you can kind of expensive it. books because they are, but yeah. bear with me. They're worth it. I keep one in the shower because I'd have some of my greatest ideas in the shower. My greatest, so literally I'll be in the shower. I will stop covered in soap and write myself a note. And then when I get out of the shower, I can do it right in the shower. I don't forget things because how many times you have a great idea and you're not in a place to write it down. And then the next day you're like, what was that idea? So I implemented that and it's been a game changer. It's like, whoa. <laughs> it's so much more done now they have one of those um they used to have them at costco where you write write it on the it used, it's like a newer age etch a sketch pad where you kind of write i used to use that but it, the heat doesn't really work too well sometimes or it got screwed up like i think the battery got wet oh, like yeah. your idea of right in the, the rain the pen doesn't get wet or is it a different pen pen? design for that it, it come they sell a pen to go with it the little oh. ballpoint pen it's got a, a cap that snaps on and, and then you got the tear away booklet yep absolutely awesome i like that <laughs> it works so secondly what's the secret or hack to the art of fulfillment being happy you know because it's oh. always you know more and more money more and more bigger things how do you kind of yeah. pause i'm always fair to myself in other words last night for example i had a I, I do a coaching program group coaching program and i'm up those nights i give a ton of value i'm on the phone with people for 
like two hours. And we start at eight o'clock. Sometimes we go till 10, 1030. Well, I worked all day yesterday too, right? I was engaged doing other things all day yesterday. So I worked more than what I would normally like to work. So I will take after we're done today, I'm going to take a couple hours for me. One of my big passions is personal development. So one of my greatest enjoyment is created a cup of espresso and I'm going to sit down with a good book that I want to read for me. And I'm going to take that, that knowledge in. And for me, that's like one of my favorite things in the world. Is this on like the days off working or is it kind of within the, the madness of the, the work week? It's within the madness. On the weekends, I completely unplug. I got that property up in the woods and phone stays in the truck for the weekend. And I go out and walk in the woods and I do a lot of photography, totally off the grid, nice, sustainable little property and unplug time. All right. Well, anything I uh, think we missed? Any other lasting messages? Uh, you want to get your contact information out there for folks to get a hold of you? Yep. Best way to reach me is uh, my website, cashflowguys.com, cashflowguys.com. I have a YouTube channel under the same name. I put out a lot of free education for people to help them get going. My podcast is on both YouTube and my website and, of course, all the other places, Libsyn, Stitcher, iTunes, all that good stuff. Anywhere you go, just type in cash flow and then guys and you'll come right to me and take all the content in. Oh, yeah. And everybody says, well, you know, Tyler kind of does what you do, Lane. And it's like, well, I think personal development, all those, it's all the think and grow rich stuff regurgitated by different peoples. I think you just got to find people you resonate with, kind of says it in your language. And it might come from different people, but I think at the end of the day, probably going to work on the same deals, type of deals. Or I always think about diversifying into all kinds of stuff, not just apartments or one thing or another, but maybe even non-performing notes, you know. I agree 100%. If you ever need help with that, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Got to write a note. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Tyler. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. And you guys, make sure you guys go to the website, sign up for that bi-weekly newsletter because I don't have enough time to do it weekly. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.